Yo, everybody, welcome back to another episode. Connor Wanders, glad to be with you here today. I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to be real with you right now. I'm a little tired. Dragging a little ass. I'm a little sore, I'm a little stiff, but I'm feeling okay, and I'm glad to be here. One thing I really noticed about after we switched kind of from Politically Homeless to what we're doing now here at Connor Wanders is that it is a lot easier for me to just have my topics, sit down, and get rolling, which is so nice. You know, I think it's important to like push against resistance as much as you can. And there definitely was some today. It was some, I was actually going to record this last night and my head just hit the wall. And that's what that's really funny after with having a three and a half month old kid is like, um, you get to this point where like, Oh, I've got it. I'm good. And then all of a sudden it, you just, you got nothing left and your brain just leaves your body. And I've been there and that's what's been, that's been part of my life, uh, the last three or so months. So yeah. But we're doing good. Rose doing great. Um, I bought her this piano. One thing that, uh, you know, I talk a lot about like things that we're talking or thinking through with parenting right now. One thing that came to mind, we were at Target getting some stuff. So I took Ro and we're just kind of walking around with her and keeping her entertained while Kelly was doing her thing. And we just walked around the toy section at, um, at Target and just messing around with stuff, just like pushing buttons and whatever. And, you know, I hadn't thought about this until we had her. And we started getting her toys and different stuff. And a lot of the stuff we get is um, like we get stuff off Etsy, like handmade stuff, stuff that's made of wood. I try to keep her away from like anything too crazy. But I was looking at different toys they had for little kids, little like especially like six month old kids. And there was a lot of stuff that, like did your ABCs and was very stimulating and very over the top. And it, it, like you would push a button and it would just like erupt in colors and sounds and stimulation. And I was like, this does not seem like a good idea. Like I feel like I have a responsibility to create a, a appropriate and healthy neurochemical balance in my daughter's brain. <laughs> and I don't know if priming her with like intense stimulation at that age is necessary. What would she be entertained by it and probably think it was fun? Like, yeah, but there are consequences to that. So I ended up getting her, I wanted to get her something. So I looked at some toys and I got her a little piano, which if you guys have seen my Instagram, I posted that up there. Um, of her, she's three and a half months old, like playing the piano, which is really interesting. And she kind of seems like she knows what she's doing. Very weird. I was not expecting that, but I got her that. It said from three to six years old was the appropriate age range. But I'm like, listen, it's a little mini piano uh, with wooden legs. And to me, I'm like, that's a, that's an appropriate amount of stimulation. She can push, there's feedback, right? She can push the button. She, she's learning how to move her hands and arms right now, which is fascinating because every day she gets a little bit better. Um, she was petting the dog last night for the first time, like kind of reaching and touching his snout and moving her hand around. It was really cute. Um, but I felt like that was appropriate. Like that, that, that made sense to me. It's like, hey, she doesn't need to push a button and have an eruption of lights and color and sounds and all these things that was just seemed like it was overkill. Whereas this little piano is like, yeah, you push a key and you do this and you can make cool stuff and you can actually push the button and it plays songs for you, which I felt was fine. Um, but it was some of those things I, I hadn't thought about that until now. And I was like, man, that's, that's wild. And then I saw this uh, woman on Instagram, which I get served a lot of parenting content on Instagram, had a taken kind of taken away screens and these things from their kid. And they had just had like toys and stuff. And it, that's one thing I love about having, you know, and I know this is a very privileged position, but having a lot of space out here is that she'll have like tools and different things. She can go dig in the yard. And, and there's, I, I grew up doing that stuff. I mean, we had BB guns, which was probably, you know, nowadays is a little bit different. We would go around just like shooting stuff and 
messing around and we got in trouble a lot and we would take our bikes and go like do dangerous shit and catch crawdads in this little uh, tank behind our house and take slingshots. I mean, a lot of it was weapons based climb trees. We would, we had these big, um, like really long nails that my granddad kept for oil field stuff for uh, like nailing through railroad ties. And we would like make ladders into the tree. It was just, so we did all kinds of that stuff. And I think I kind of take that for granted having, having had space as a kid and just a lot of outside time. And we also played too many video games, but even back then, right. When we, even when I was a kid and there's something that I've noticed about just like this loneliness epidemic that we're seeing kind of crop up with Gen Z and, um, that's really struck with me is, is back in the day when we would play video games, it was so rare to sit down and play a video game by myself. Right. I mean, maybe like Zelda was one that you could play by yourself. I would play Donkey Kong by myself. Um, some stuff like that. But really it was like me and my brother, me and my friends, we would have friends over to play uh, video games. We were like, yeah, we were sitting in front of a TV, which our parents didn't like, Think about how quaint that is now. Think about how quaint it is to like sit around a TV with your friends, trading out, playing video games, like punching each other in the arm after you beat each other. At, we uh, we used to play like NFL Blitz, or there was this game that was really underrated called Smash Ball. That was really fun. We played that. Me and my brother would play Donkey Kong, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, like these games, they were meant to be played with somebody else in real life. And then whenever the new Xboxes came out, I wanted to play uh, Halo again. I was like, going to be fun if I can just, sometimes I'll just listen to podcasts and like play a video game. I'll play like a golf video game or, or Halo or something like that. But I figured I could just download games on there that me and Kelly could play together. So I got an extra controller and I got this. And I realized that video game consoles today aren't made to be played with somebody else in person. They're made to be played online. That's it. I could not really find an appropriate like split screen two player game that I could play with my wife. Like Tetris was the only one that was really on there. It was like this kind of, you know, advanced Tetris game. And it was, I hadn't really noticed that, but it was really strange. And I'm like, man, we've, we've, we've created this industry of isolation. That's really kind of disgusting <laughs> at the end of the day. Like it really is kind of weird. And I, I kind of miss those days, you know I mean? Even like pre Xbox Live, right? I brought up Halo. Halo was a we played that game for hours and hours when I was a kid after football, after football practice or whatever. And I mean, I hope like, maybe Josh can find some photos of this this kind of thing to put on a put online. But it was like me and a bunch of other dudes, and we would drink Mountain Dew Code Red, which was a problem, and chew sunflower seeds. But before Xbox Live became a thing, and even early Xbox Live, and it wasn't very good because internet connections in my hometown were not great. Um, we had to get something called a hub to play multiplayer. And I, I hope some of you out there know exactly what I'm talking about because this was the coolest device at the time ever, right? And one of our friends had a game room. And then another friend, actually his, his, uh, his uncle had a, an oil field yard with a, with a work building on it, with an office building that didn't really get used. So we had these two places where we could play video games. And we would, no shit, like load up TVs in our trucks. Okay, this is how it would go. We'd all get together at school. We'd be like, hey, we're going to go to Jared's house or or uh, or, or Blake's uh, uncle's place. And we're going to take these TVs. We're going to take a ping pong table, right? Ping pong table was the perfect size. And then we would also have people bring couches. So there was like a whole infrastructure to playing Xbox and playing Halo together. And what this hub did was it let you connect four different Xboxes together. And so you could play 
with 16 people, right? And you could use your TV and you're playing against these other guys. We would play these, these different games, but it would literally be like 30 of us in a room. As we got older, it kind of became like a pregame. And it would go on. We sometimes would just miss parties because we were just playing Halo and drinking. But when we were younger, it was just like 16 dudes in a room. I'm sure it smelled like ass because it was like after football practice. We'd go over to somebody's house, put four TVs that we got from our houses and different things, four different couches. And we would set up, even at my buddy Eric's house, we would do this, even though his dad didn't love it too much. Um, and we would put these TVs together. And we would all be together playing games and like like i said we used to be able to get four mountain De- mountain dew code reds when they first came out for a dollar so we just have we're drinking that shit which was awful but hey we didn't know any better so like if someone like headshot you you could literally get up and like zing a uh, empty coke Ze- or a um, mountain dew code red bottle at them across the ping pong table and like hit them in the face like it was just we were doing it together and it was like yeah we were sitting in front of screens but it's just that's not the same game that we're playing now And it's something I've become really aware of. And it's like something I really miss. I mean, we had some of the best times me and my brother had were playing fucking Super Nintendo together, you know, and you could do it whenever. And it was, it was fun. And and again, our parents were on our ass about being in front of the TV, but it just wasn't the same as it is now where you're meant to put a headset on and be disconnected from other people while kind of being in a community. It's, it's, it's different now. And I feel like we really lost something like, Bring back the days where you could play video games together in a room. I mean, even think about old arcades. If you go watch like Stranger Things in that time period where it's like it was a, it was a community hangout or Days to Confuse, like that, that arcade slash like pool and foosball spot that they played in, uh, that they were at in Austin, right? That place where uh, Matthew McConaughey's famous line, like, I get still older and they stay the same age, was right in front of that building in Austin. Um, like, I don't know, man. We've just... We've commercial commercialized isolation so much that it becomes a real investment of energy and a burden to connect with people. And I'm someone who really is, is very extroverted and kind of thrives in human connection. Like this weekend, I'm going to get my CrossFit level one again. And the reason is because I want to just coach part-time. I Now that I have a daughter, I want to coach CrossFit kids and teens and stuff like that. Like That's something I've always loved doing um, and did back in my days at CrossFit Central some. And, and always, I, did really, I was really good at it, but I also just loved it. Like I was good at it because I really cared and had a good time with it. And I think building those, those foundational kind of fitness and movements and structure in children is really – like that, that leads to some really – can really lead to a, a better life. So there's a lot of um, emotional investment in my on my end in kind of helping kids um, build themselves up and build confidence and things like that. So, but one of the reasons I want to do that is because during COVID, we kind of operated under different principles and we moved a little bit outside of town and I love our place out here. It's fantastic. We have this little compound, but I need to get around people. I want to be around people again. Like I am so connection driven And it's one of the reasons that COVID and you guys have noticed like the bitterness that it had after all of that, like that was lingering from just the resentment of being disconnected from people for so long. And I see it more and more everywhere. And it's a very nuanced problem. It's a very real problem. We're seeing, I mean, the consequences of that are everywhere, whether it's just like general depression, suicide, stuff like that. But it's, it's, it's crazy. This loneliness piece, piece is crazy. And if you look at like every The deck is stacked against us everywhere when it comes to human connection. And we have to, in our own lives, seek that out, make those changes, uh, be examples for our families and our communities. 
and notice these little things, right? Notice how we're being stimulated. Notice how we're being kind of primed for isolation, primed to be accustomed to isolation. And then we got to ask ourselves, who benefits from that? Hmm. Interesting. So, moving on. I did want to talk about this uh, just briefly. I watched the movie Contact yesterday, or the past couple days. We split up into two because it's a long movie. If you haven't seen Contact, it's a movie with Jodie Foster and early Matthew McConaughey. <sighs> Fantastic movie. I mean, underrated, I think. Really incredible movie. And it's really the kind of the premise is Jodie Foster is a scientist, um, astrophysicist, and she gets a, a signal from a distant uh, planet. So whatever. And they build this device that can apparently transport someone. It's a whole thing. But really what the movie is about, if you look at the deeper meaning of it, is about faith, right? There's a big question of faith in this movie. Uh, religious folks want to be represented in contact with whatever species this is. It's a big part of it. And then Jodie Foster kind of has to operate from a place of faith, from a very rational, scientific-minded place. And I thought that it was, especially for the time, like the 90s in in uh, America weren't really a time for challenging concepts like that. And I think they actually did a pretty decent job for that time period. And it's been interesting because they, they there's this moment in the movie where there, there's a, a select panel for who's going to go on this journey. And they don't want to send someone who's not religious. And I was like, huh. That's interesting because I think that actually would still hold up today if you were just to project this reality onto us today. Like, what would be the ideal person to make some kind of contact with the race, right? And then I thought about this. Well, it's like, well, the per- the quote in the movie is something like 95% of people believe in a higher power of some sort. It's like, well, maybe. I don't think it's that number now, but it's definitely high. And that's, I think there's something in that. I mean, that's been a, a trend, a, a product of human nature and human behavior as long as we know in different ways. But that's the thing, in different ways. And I think one, this is one of the reasons I kind of challenge dogma so much and why Christians tend to be the, on the receiving end of that because I do live in the United States and Christianity kind of has spirituality by the balls for the most part in this country and I don't think that's to our benefit. Uh, that being said, most Christians I know, many Christians I know, are great Christians. Will Roosh, for example, my favorite Christian. <laughs> I love that guy. And I love his take on it. I love the way he looks at it. Um, I like the way Jordan Peterson discusses it. I've learned things from him in that. I've, my views on Christianity have changed. I've eased off of it a little bit. But I still take a principled stance against dogma in any form, whether that's radical lefty shit, whether that's Christianity, whether that's uh, like this pro-war dogma, right? This like American exceptionalism dogma that is it becomes an excuse for tyranny, in my opinion. And we can see those trends in history. So, I uh, this woman had shared this thing, and somebody sent it to me and was like making fun of this lady. Uh, I think it's like. Her handle's like 1776 Mama Bear or some shit, like with some stupid Mama Patriot or some stuff, you know, one of those things, right? And it said, you know, if your kid gets straight A's and goes to college and buys a house but doesn't find the Lord, it means nothing. And I was like, or doesn't find Jesus or some shit like that. And for me, I took that personally because I've done a lot of these things. 
and didn't get straight A's, but I've done some things. In my life, personally, and this is my own anecdotal experience, right, has gotten profoundly better. I've been a, a, a much better person. I've been a much happier person since leaving Christianity, since consciously stepping away from Christianity. Early on in that process, there was a shitload of resentment, right? But through psychedelics and Buddhist practices, I was able to find compassion, understanding, and eventually gratitude for my experience in Christianity. Reason being that leaving Christianity is not easy to do. Okay, a lot of people will relate to this. People that have. And I know a lot of people, like attracts like, that have had similar experiences um, and have been really struggled with this. Like leaving a belief system that was kind of the scaffolding of your morality, the way you live your life. And it's a challenging thing to do. And because I'm open about that, I do tend to have a bias towards people telling me these stories. And I understand that, right? It's not a, it's not a random sample when you're open about these kind of experiences. But for me personally, like I took that personally, of course, uh, even though I probably shouldn't have and shared something about it, just saying, I'm kind of making a joke, making a lot of it. Like my life has gotten better since leaving Christianity, objectively. Um, but the gratitude came in and I was able to find gratitude through some meditation and just like uh, a lot of Alan Watts stuff and just getting into uh, Pima Chodron was another one who just, I look at these people and I learned a lot from them in finding gratitude for experiences and knowing that I am the product of my experiences and the way I show up in my life is a product of my experiences. My free will is the product of experiences, however limited it may be. So I, I realized that because I had left Christianity, it left this kind of belief or faith or spirituality vacuum in my life. And being a very curious person, I was able to seek out and take, take from other belief systems to fill that void that was left. And without having had that Christian experience, I may have never had that spiritual vacuum, if you will, right? To find these things that resonate with me in what I feel is a more productive way. So I was able to find gratitude for that, which was took years. It really did. And it took years to process like all the lingering bullshit that Christianity had, had kind of um, left in me, you know? And I think it's different finding Christianity as an adult, you know, getting into it more than than versus being a kid. I think it's a little easier for that to, uh, it's a little easier to grace, grasp the concepts and not be indoctrinated, but have a healthy relationship with it as an adult. And I know more people that have had that experience versus people who grew up in it and were kind of shut off from other things and lived through a principle of shame because as kids, we kind of reduce things down to very simplistic terms and that can be damaging. Um, through an ideology like Christianity, through a mythology. I know Christians don't like hearing that, but you, it, is a, it is a mythology. It's a collection of myths. That's what it is, by definition. So when, um, when this woman kind of attacked me, and of course I brought it on, right? I'm not innocent in this. But she kept calling me worldly as an insult. She, when I felt that I was talking and... and this is may sound really cruel, but it, I'm, I'm being completely honest here. I felt like I was talking to a 12-year-old. The way that she engaged with this, right, and kind of good faith critiques of what she had to say, right, which turned into bad faith critiques after a while because I got annoyed, um, 
was so, she was like she she felt as if calling me worldly was tearing down my belief systems. And then she she when I talked about uh, different pathways, and I talked about Judaism, I talked about Buddhism, I talked about uh, Islam, I talked about Taoism. Right? I offered. There's a lot of different method method methodologies to developing a spiritual reality. Um, and they all deserve to be respected in my opinion, right? And criticized in, in my opinion, like they all deserve to be respected and criticized. All belief systems do. We just happen to have one that is dominant in this culture. If I lived in Iran, it'd be a different story, right? If I was in India and I had a problem with the caste system that has been endorsed by Hinduism, I would be having a different conversation, right? But I live here in the United States. So when I talk about these, she criticized me for um, just following some dead guy. Because in her, in her mind, Jesus isn't dead. Jesus didn't die. Which kind of begs the question, it's like, well, Jesus, yeah, he was tortured. And that was bad. But like people are tortured right now. So that's happening all the time. People have gone through way worse things, right? Shall I bring up the Holocaust, Westward expansionism, what happened to the Native Americans? Like the people have gone through really terrible things. At the end of the day, Jesus was dead for like two days in your mythology. So he really, he gave up like a long weekend and then he went to like a better place. So what did he actually do as far as suffering that's exceptional to what millions of other people have dealt with, if not hundreds of millions? Odd, right? But one thing I really appreciate about Buddhism is that a lot of it isn't about Buddha. It's not about Siddhartha. It's not about, that's not what it is about. Even he had the foresight to be like, this thing will change and evolve as people change and evolve. That's why it's based on principles, right? So the Eightfold Path, Four Noble Truths, this, these kind of things, it's principle-based, which was one of the reasons it resonates with me and, and I've kind of built my structure based on that. But it was interesting that she had this idea and this is what really irked me was like, there's only one true path. And this woman just thinks that because she was born here and she seems to think she understands other religions, but she doesn't um, just based on her dialogue that she was the arbiter of truth, right? That she had this access. She had had this mystical experience and that that was the evidence she needed to confirm her belief that she had the one true path. And I would challenge you guys out there that believe that like, is it really that productive to think that you have access to the one true path? I don't think so. I just don't think it is, right? I don't think it, 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 it breeds healthy skepticism and, and then your belief system lacks resilience due to that belief. I think it actively weakens one's belief structure. Now let's talk about this insult that she kept throwing my way, calling me worldly and my beliefs worldly. If we look at mega preachers, Josh can pull some photos up of mega preachers, their private jets, Joel Osteen, his wife, just the typical white preacher's wife, right? Big hair, Botox, tons of makeup, extravagant clothes, extravagant homes. These are all real things that live within Christianity, right? You also have within Christianity a um, prosperity gospel, which is much different than the origins of Christianity, right? Much different than Jesus. I think Jesus would be 
honestly disgusted, right? Jesus would just go hang out with poor people. When's the last time you know a Christian who just hung out with, with poor people? A lot of Christians you hate poor people. <laughs> right? it's, yeah, it's weird. And not that all of you do, but I'm, you, you, you know what I'm talking about, and if you don't, you're deluding yourself, right? So when you look at them, and you have someone who operates within that belief system, right? I don't run into very many Buddhists at um, Ulta, right? I don't see them going into those stores very often. So when this woman called me worldly, I pulled up a photo of one of my favorite teachers, Pima Chodron. Let's take a look at Pima Chodron. Uh, this woman is elderly. She has a buzz cut. And if you look at the first page of her photos here, we'll scroll through. She's wearing a burgundy robe with a yellow scarf or yellow shirt underneath. Excuse me. Are you, do you, do you think this woman looks, does she look worldly to you? Does she look worldly to you? Does that seem very worldly? Do you think that her reality exists based on this plane? All right, let's look at another one. Jack Cornfield. Another great teacher of mine. Does this man look worldly to you? Does he have a Bentley or a private jet? Huh. So that attack I really thought was odd. I thought that was a really odd attack. But do you see how that way of functioning within a belief system actively undermines the belief system? The the hardcore adherence to one true path that I have access to absolute capital T truth does not mean that you were strong in your faith. In my opinion, it means that you're insecure in your faith, but unawarely insecure. There is wisdom, there's wisdom in insecurity, right? There's absolutely wisdom in insecurity. It's a book by Alan Watts. It's a great book. Go check it out. There's, there's growth in that. There's understanding in that. That, that, that. that insecurity allows you to doubt yourself and question yourself, which leads to, if you have a belief system that is worthy of resilience, that insecurity can lead to a more resilient belief system. So I think a lot of times Christians have it backwards. And due to that, you have dogma, overreach, centralized authority, right? And a relatively fragile belief system. That being said, believe what you want to believe. And if you find value in your beliefs, Get after it. But I wanted to articulate in a way, and that, that in a way that wasn't so aggressive. Because sometimes, I mean, I do make a lot of jokes about a lot of things. A lot of people who get upset about me making fun of shit like what she had to say will love it when I criticize Dylan Mulvaney and that nonsense, right? Which is also an outreach of belief-based ideology uh, that has overreach and is and lacks nuance. But a lot of people can't see the similarities, right? We're blinded to ourselves. But I thought I'd bring that up. I thought that was worth talking about. Anyways, you guys know about Ozempic, right? You guys have heard about this this new thing? Have you seen it? Have you heard about this? Ozempic for the fatty bombaddies out there? Being bought up by celebrities like Kim Kardashian. Uh, let's check this out. 
CNN says, who advisors consider whether obesity medication should be added to the essential medicines list? The WHO, the World Health Organization, which has overseen the largest degrading of health in human history, <laughs> is considering adding Ozempic, the obesity medication, to the essential medicines list. List. Now, we're going to play with this a little bit. Let's hear what they have to say. Advisors at the World Health Organization will consider next month whether to, whether to add liraglutide to active, uh, the active ingredient in diabetes and obesity medications to the list of essential medicines. The list, which is updated every two years, includes medicines that, quote, safely uh, – excuse me – medicines, quote, that safe – satisfy the priority health needs of the population in quote, the who says they are intended to be available within the context of function, um, a function health systems, uh, at all times and adequate amounts and an appropriate dosage is in forms of assured quality and at prices that individuals in the community can't afford. So they want to make Ozempic an essential medicine, which means it will be available in large quantities, right? It's always readily available. And uh, it'll be at a price that most people can afford. So what is Ozempic? And what does Ozempic do? Let's check this out. This is from uh, 60 Minutes Overtime. Just kind of a brief breakdown from somebody who I'm sure is completely unbiased and rational in their approach. Let's check this out. Biggest misconception about obesity. The biggest misconception about weight and obesity is that somehow your weight is under your control. Obesity is the biggest misconception about weight and obesity is that somehow it's under your control. Now, while I'll admit, and I have said this a lot of times, obesity is not a person's fault, right? It is an addiction and sort of a disease, but it depends, right? It's very nuanced. If you get your brain and your neurology coded to sweets, low-quality food, overeating, um, sh- sugar addiction at a young age based on parents that are morons and a system that profits from your fatness, right? It makes it really hard to say that's 100% your fault. It is your responsibility to do something about it. But even obtaining quality information is is incredibly burdensome because these companies, the sugar lobby, has flooded the zone with so much bad science, right? And the same companies who sell all the sugary sweets also own these like fad diet companies like South Beach and Jenny Craig and all this other bullshit. Those are still owned by these mega corporations. So they're profiting from your fatness and your, your, your attempts at sorting yourself out. So we have large interests at stake that manipulate human nature for their own profit. Yes, But to say that it's purely genetic is a flat-out lie. Go look at photos from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? Go check that out. Just photos of the beach versus photos of the beach from now. Were all the obese people, the 40% of people that just happened to be obese, did they just stay inside on those days? Like, what was going on? Clearly, something has changed, and it's not genetic. Let's continue. It's a disease of the pathways that regulate your energy balance. And those pathways have been hijacked by corporations and special interests that profit from those pathways being manipulated. Dr. Caroline Opovian, who specializes in weight management at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, 
explained how the anti-obesity medication Wagovi and the diabetes drug Ozempic work. These new medications that have come out, what do they actually do in the body? These new medications are analogs of naturally occurring hormones that your body makes. When the food goes through your intestines, those cells in the intestine makes these hormones and the hormones go to the brain and say you're full. That's what we're putting in a pen. and We're just giving patients a little more of that fullness hormone. So the new medication is saying, all right, you've eaten enough. You've eaten enough, and it does so when you've eaten less food. That's what it's supposed to do. Are those the medications? It's just like a... So you're hijacking your neurology, right? To say, hey, I'm full. Well, let's, let's ask ourselves a question that probably doesn't get asked very often. Well, why are we in a situation where your gut and the connection of your, between your gut and your brain is lying to you about how much food you need, right? Is that genetic? Really? Because maybe we're not eating nutrient-dense food. And while we're overeating calories, right, overeating quantities of food, we're actually starving as a culture, as a people, as a, as a, as a, a country, right? We are starving for nutrients because our food has been so manipulated and bastardized that it takes us overeating to the point of becoming obese to even flirt with appropriate levels of certain micro and macronutrients. Now, what can you say about palatability and reward? Like, well, sweet things that are salty and full of fat, right? So there's all those things combined, which, of course, I'm not villainizing fat here, but these things combined, salty, sweet, and, and fat, hijack your neurology. Now, if you add those things all together in something that has very little micro, um, micronutrient density, you're going to be able to eat that forever because your body's not getting what it needs from food. Now, what you could say is, hey, only eat food that looks like food. Chips don't look like food. Twinkies don't look like food. Right? Cereal does not look like food. That's not food. That's food-like products. It can keep you alive, kind of. But do that. Eat a steak and sweet potato with butter on it. Right? And some salt, of course. You need that. Shout out to Element. Um, and see if you how much you can overeat that. See how much you can overeat that. It's not the same. It's not the same as a pizza. Not the same as French fries. French fries are a good example, right? You got the starches in there, which is fine. Potatoes are fine. But then you add the salt. Then you add the then you add the grease, right? Do all these things. You're hijacking your neurology. And even French fries, as far as like list of things that you can eat that are fucked, are pretty low on the list. But just as an example of how many more French fries you can eat than plain potatoes, <laughs> right? There's a big discrepancy there, and that's the product of that palatability and reward system, which this woman does not want to bring up. She wants to put you on an injection that's lifetime, right? And what she's talking about that there, that there about uh, being a uh, hormone precursors that will essentially hijack your neurology and tell your brain that you're full. That is exactly the same thing as human growth hormone, testosterone, HCG, uh, these different 
anabolics, right? That's what they do. Would they have the same opinion of anabolics in doing that with your endocrine system? Probably not, right? Probably not. That also changes your behavior in a certain way. But then what happens when you come off? They talk about that. What are the side effects? Do they talk about that? No. It's a profit-driven cure for a fake problem. Whenever I used to take Adderall, I took Adderall in college, or uh, Vyvanse was my, my thing. Took it in college, and then took it a little bit after. Um, and I remember I went to a, a, a kind of a holistic doctor. Wiseman Family Practice in Austin, Texas. Can't speak highly enough about their practice. Fantastic. But doctor, doctors, he was very honest. It was one of the, it was, it was, I loved Dr. Wiseman because he was so honest. And I remember I was like, hey, you know, I used to take Adderall for ADHD, yada, yada, yada. I had been diagnosed with ADHD. I think I do have some kind of ADD something. I have the symptoms of it, but that just means, that means I have to structure my life in a different way. That's what I do now and have for a decade. But at this time, I was like working a lot, really hustling, really grinding, doing the thing. And it really helped because I was, you know, being on speed helps you get shit done. And it was funny, we were having this conversation, and he goes, you understand that this is a make-believe solution to a make-believe problem, right? And I was like, that's the best way I've ever heard this drug described. Adderall and Vyvanse, for the most part, and some people do need these drugs, right? I don't call them medicines because they're not, they're drugs. Some people do need these drugs. And I'd say it's probably about 2% of the people who take these drugs, Right? Adderall is a make-believe solution to a make-believe problem. Ozempic is a make-believe solution to a make-believe problem. There are a thousand other things you can do to accomplish the goals that Ozempic has set that have nothing to do with pharmaceuticals. So let's ask ourselves a bigger question here. Let's zoom out a little bit. What really helps when it comes to macronutrient um, availability, ingestion, right? Well, a diversity of food, different types of foods, right? A variety of foods, seasonal foods, local foods. The big part too, right? You should have different foods in the spring versus the winter versus the summer versus the fall. Different things are in season. And that happens naturally because nature knows what the fuck it's doing to provide you with the macronutrients needed in those times, which we've completely gotten away from after World War II by monocrop agriculture and, and, and the bias in quantity instead of quality. So if we look here, farms get bigger even as the number of farms decline. So you've got 2009 to about 2016 here, and it's only gotten much worse since then. But to do this inverse relationship, millions of farms has decreased from about 2.17 million to about 2 million. And the size of farms has increased in almost the exact inverse relationship. So what is that saying? There's less local farms, less small farms, and more big farms, which does what? Decrease variation, uh, decreases um, small farm and uh, competition within that market, right? Decreases variation, way less uh, seasonal approach, more monocrop approach. It's a, it's, a, it's a toxic way of going about it. We need small local farms. We need a, 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 a nationwide push for more small local farms providing food for schools, for grocery stores in that area. Maybe you shouldn't be able to get every fruit on the fucking planet at any time. 
And we should be okay with that. That is good, right? That is appropriate. If you want to talk about climate change and the environment, having avocados flown to wherever the fuck you are, from wherever the fuck they grow, isn't necessarily a good thing, right? So we look at that. We say, wow, that is a dangerous, dangerous trend that we need to do something about. We need to break up these conglomerates and put the focus back on new forms that can try new techniques and have the benefits of capitalism, right, and the variations within the market. And those who do better with regenerative agriculture, variation, crop rotation, raising healthy animals, those people should rise to the top. And we should set the incentive structure in a way that rewards that type of agriculture. It's better for our health. It's better for our environment. It's more moral and ethical. So many boxes are checked by that, but it gets ignored because we're still operating from a poverty mindset and the mindset of people that are starving because we are as a culture. One last thing I wanted to bring up here as, a, as, a, as an example of the level of fuckery that we're existing in. Post-consumer brands has a new product. It's called Sweet Dream Cereal. It says, for 130 million American adults, a good night's sleep is elusive. You deserve a good night's sleep, and we want to help you enjoy it. So we made Sweet Dream Cereal, the first ready-to-eat cereal specially designed to support a good sleep routine and a fresh start to the next day. Sleep cereal. Interesting. Now let's look here at the, uh, the blueberry midnight cereal. Natural and delicious flavors of blueberry, lavender, and chamomile, plus curated vitamins and minerals to support natural melatonin production. Our dreamy cereal supports a healthy sleep routine. Let's look at the nutrition facts here. All right, so we've got 46 grams of carbohydrates, 16 grams of sugar, 13 grams of added sugar. Ingredients. Let's just read these off real quick. Whole grain wheat, rice, cane sugar. Well, at least it's cane sugar and not a uh, high fructose corn syrup. Um, whole grain rolled oats, almonds, dried blueberries, blueberries, inert sugar, glycerin, sunflower oil, hmm, natural flavors, canola and or soybean oil. Well, that's awful. Uh, flavor clusters. What the fuck is a flavor cluster? <laughs> sugar, corn syrup, jitterbird corn, <laughs> cornstarch, palm oil, natural lavender and chamomile flavors, cacao, uh, blueberry and carrot concentrates for color, uh, salt, barley malt extracts, corn syrup again. How many times is corn syrup going to be in this thing? Uh, molasses, whatever the fuck that word is, and natural flavor, which who knows what the hell that means. Is it flavor that is natural, flavor that's supposed to taste natural? Who knows? But let's look at some of the things that are scary here. We've got sugar added, of course. No surprise there. Uh, sunflower oil, canola oil, soybean oil, corn syrup, corn syrup, corn syrup. <laughs> <laughs> and that is from the innovative brilliance of post-consumer brands. And we wonder why. We wonder why we're starving as a nation. We wonder why we act in a way as if we are dying and desperate and in need at all times. And we wonder why our culture is manifested in such a way that that is the reality. So where does it start? What do we do? That's where the question asks. But you know who's doing a good job? Finland. Today's episode is brought to you by me. 
and the Connor Wanders Premium Patreon. Listen, if you dig this show and you like what we're doing here and you feel like you want to get a little deeper, you want to help craft the contents, you want a bonus episode every week that is curated by the Patreon for the Patreon, ad-free as always, you need to check out the Connor Wanders Patreon, guys. We're cultivating a community in there based on principles and diving into some really fun topics and things that sometimes we just can't get into on this show that are more specific and sometimes really nailing things down. I love that I'm able to get to know people in there and have these questions top pop up. I also offer the ability for you to ask, ask questions anonymously and we just have a good time. You can share whatever you want. When you get to some culture stuff, some stuff that maybe doesn't make sense for this show, we get into all of it there. Part of the Patreon that I really love is that I am obligated to you, right? You own me for that one hour a week where we jump in and dive in deep on your topics and your curiosities. And if you want advice or little things here and there, that's a great place for it. Check it out, patreon.com slash Connor Wanders. The link is in the show notes of this show, and it is the sponsor today. You want to support us, you want to be a part of it, I'd really appreciate it. Hope to see you there. Patreon.com slash Connor Wanders. Link is in the show notes. Finland, the happiest country in the world for the fourth time in a row. Let's check it out what it's like to live in Finland. For the fourth year in a row, Finland topped the list of world's happiest, uh, the happiness report. If this is surprising to you, after all, um, all Finland is known for its br- brutally cold winter, winters and limited daylight. So it's not beaches and... And lattes, right? Finland is not an overtly happy-go-lucky or worry-free place. Founder of Fact Law Law Firm, blah, 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 blah. Finns are reserved, for example. The Finnish language has a common phrase that's loosely translated for one who smiles for no good reason, and it is not a compliment. So Finns have been shocked to learn they are so happy. (laughs) So the Finnish people are, are surprised that they're happy as fuck. The annual survey from Gallup looked at six key factors, GDP per capita, social support, life expectancy, freedom to make life choices, generosity, and corruption levels. Finland scores well of all of these categories, although it does particularly well in the generosity factor. The study has a lot of people wondering what it is that gives Finn such a positive outlook on life and what life is really like for the land of a thousand lakes. I visited Finland and spoke to people in there, blah, blah, blah. So parents love that their children can get an excellent education in Finland. How about that? How about that? My daughter is three and a half months old and I'm already concerned about the low quality education that we're going to have to tolerate, right? I mean, what a joke. The richest country in the world and we can't even provide a decent education for our kids. Now, I want you to also, there's a photo here of a bunch of strollers lined up. Those aren't entry strollers. Those are strollers with kids in them. Women can leave their kids unattended in a stroller and go into the grocery store, do their thing. No problem. Would you ever do that in the United States? The quote-unquote greatest country in the world. Could you ever leave your kid unattended outside of a grocery store in any town in the United States? I'm sure there's a couple, but there sure as fuck ain't many. Let's keep on going. Finland was ranked the most literate nation in 2016, and Finns love their libraries. So they actually read. Because a lot of people here in the United States complain about Drag Queen Story Hour, which is a little bit odd to me, I will admit. But those same people aren't reading to their kids. Are you reading to your kids? If you're not reading to your kids, should, be, should you be mad about a drag queen reading to your kids? Hmm, interesting. Literacy rates. Cuba has better literacy rates than we do. Right? For all the, the demonization of Fidel Castro, 
At least the kids can fucking read. Huh. Moving on. It's an incredibly safe country. Weird. It's a safe place to live. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be? And it's a no. This isn't as, we aren't dealing with the kind of violence that we dealt with 2,000 years ago. (laughs) Right? I get it, Charlie Kirk. But, we have crime that runs out of control in major cities. It's insane. Universal health care is a given in Finland. Now, say what you want about universal health care, but I can tell you that paying $30,000 on average to have a child isn't necessarily pro-life. So isn't it funny? I bet the abortion rates in Finland are much lower than they are in the United States. I would think so. Child mortality is also lower. And you're not going to go bankrupt over some disease caused by a broken food system and a poverty mindset. <laughs> right? You're not going to you're not going to be held accountable for the fuckery of a broken food system in Finland and a broken healthcare system in Finland, right? Cuz at the end of the day, the government is now incentivized to have healthy options, healthy food because that's on the taxpayer dollar now. Right? Isn't that weird if you change the incentives where now all of us are now responsible for the health of our country? And that becomes a topic of discussion because we have universal health care. Just, just steel manning here, right? Just throwing it out there. If, we, if the government runs the health care system, we have universal health care. We're all now incentivized to be much healthier as a culture from the top down. Instead of a fake capitalist system that allows us and profits from us being fat and sick and stupid. So our country has moved directly in, in, line, in alignment with the incentives of those who run the country, which are the mega corporations. That's who runs the country. So if we change that and say, hey, now if you're a conservative and you want less government spending, the best way to do that isn't cutting Social Security and Medicare. It's not making sure less people are sick. And wouldn't that be a different fucking incentive and different reality? Fins are big, in, big on getting outside and exploring nature. Holy shit. Isn't that funny how being in touch with something larger than yourself, i.e. nature, is something great. Now, I know that a lot of conservatives will call national parks and things like that socialism, and they think they, think they should be owned by Disney World or something. Um, but no, having access to the outdoors and actually using that access and getting out there, which is why I love our 8 million acres of public land in Colorado, one of the most beautiful things about the state, why I'm so resistant to move to Texas because they don't have that shit there. You know what they have? All the signs in the, in the, in the parks in Texas are full of bullet holes. It's not exactly an inviting environment for taking your family, getting outside. So yeah, access to getting outside and exploring nature. They have a wonderful winter time. Fins love their saunas, which are proving to increase immunity and well-being. Wow. A cultural trend that actually increases the quality of your immune system and your well-being. Isn't that a novel concept? <sighs> Nordic cuisine is impressive. Yeah, they got good food. And they believe in honesty. Weird. There's something else about people from Finland and the Scandinavian countries. They're also honest with themselves. We have this idea here, and we get told that you can be whoever you want. You can be an astronaut. You can be the president. You can make a million dollars. You can do whatever. You participate in this. That's very unlikely. 
I was talking to a friend who was recently in Europe and talking to some people from Finland. She's like, you guys, like, even their Christmas over there, it's very modest compared to ours. Think about a holiday we have that's not, com- not, not wrapped up in commercialism, right, and consumerism. We have a culture of consumerism here, right? This desperation, this seeking constantly that provides no fulfillment at all. It provides profits, and that's it. No fulfillment. And I believe in the power of markets. I believe in the, in the power of incentives. I think they, they can be structured in such a way that's very beneficial. But that's not the reality we're living in now. So when you look at Finland, think about this. Just think of it as an example. What if all of a sudden the internet didn't exist? The internet's gone. Boom. No more internet. How much would life change in the United States? We'd be dealing with riots and looting and craziness. What would life be like if the internet just disappeared in Finland? Probably relatively similar. <laughs> we just wouldn't see it because we wouldn't have Instagram. Right? So we have this. And it's something to think about, really. It's something to think about when it comes to the health of a nation and how we look at ourselves and what our incentives are as a culture and how we've kind of been manipulated just a little bit into believing that this system that we've created works for everybody. When you look at these small, wealthy nations, and I do think this is one of the reasons I, I support a national divorce and breaking this country up into five to seven other smaller countries is because you can have these small, resource-rich nations that can take care of the people in the way that makes sense for those people, and we don't have to manage 350 million people. That is not a, that's not a thing that can be done. Empires fall like that. The best thing we can do to preserve the union here is to break it up into something more similar to the EU. But we can't grasp that because we wouldn't have this gigantic war machine and these products of, of, of so-called capitalism that we worship and have been taught to worship and indoctrinated and propagandized into worshiping our entire lives. Speaking of which, lead propagandist for the Joe Biden White House for a time, Jen Psaki, had Bernie Sanders on the show to talk about his new book, uh, It's Okay to Be Upset About Capitalism, I think is the, is the – uh, is the title here. And we're just going to get into this, this here where he uh, kind of calls her out. She goes into this thing about abortion and guns and different stuff. And I just want to just point this out to you guys. And uh, let's see what we can take from this. It's Congress. The title, the title of your book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, really did sit with me. It is a memorable book title, Senator. Of all the things voters are angry about, and there are many, abortion, the lack of progress on gun reform, even Clarence Thomas's questionable relationship with a billionaire. I know how you feel about billionaires. Why should capitalism be at the top of that? Okay, so what Jin Saki just said is, Bernie, why are you caring about the well-being of the people of this nation, the working class of this. Why are you worried about things that impact everybody versus being invested in the culture war, which doesn't allow, doesn't really force us to confront any uncomfortable truths, but allows us to fundraise and talk and talk and talk and get ratings. Why would you not invest in the culture war and spend your time invested in things that actually impact people's lives? That's what Jen is saying in MSNBC speak. That list. Why was that important to be in the title of that book? Jen, what's important, abortion is a huge issue. Social justice is a huge issue. But, you know, sometimes the corporate media forgets about it and Congress forgets about it. You and I are chatting today. Do you know that there are tens and tens of millions of Americans who cannot afford health care, 
who are scared to death that if their kid or their parent gets sick, they don't know what's going to happen. There are people working for starvation wages. There are moms who can't afford to send their kids to decent childcare, can't even find a slot. Those are in issues of enormous consequence we don't talk about. You know, those are all products of uh, benefits of living in a place like Finland, right? Aren't those just the things we listed about why Finland is the happiest country in the world four years running? Hmm, interesting. Now you tell me, you got three people on top today who own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. Is that an issue we should be talking about? Does that sound like we have an economy that works for all of us? Now, when I'll say that, I don't necessarily like to attack billionaires necessarily. I don't like when billionaires can um, buy the government and have the game rigged in their favor. And I don't really, I'm not really concerned with three people having a fuck ton of money. What I am concerned about, the part of that that I'm concerned is that it's more money than the bottom half of the country combined. That's something, right? I'm not, this isn't about villainizing those people. It's about what the fuck is happening here and why is that acceptable in our culture? And why do we try to distract ourselves from confronting that reality? Well, just the few. Is that an issue worth discussing? We're talking about it now, Senator, so I'm happy to have you on. I wanted to ask you about President – I did want to ask you, sir, about President Biden's nomination of Julie Sue for the Labor Department secretary. All right, but I wanted to talk – and I love Julie. I love Julie. We're going to do our best. But let's talk about income and wealth inequality. Let's talk about concentration of ownership. Let's talk about corporate ownership of the media. Do you think that those are issues worth discussing? (laughs) Well, Senator, I have you on today. We're having a conversation about all of these issues. I did want to ask you about this because you are chairman of this committee. It is important to have a labor secretary in place, right? Uh, There is reporting that suggests the holdouts are Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. First of all, is that true? And second, what are you saying to them to get them on board? What's the case you're making for her? Well, look, we have Manchin and Cinema who torpedoed build, uh, build Back America. You are slightly familiar with that issue, I think. You know, having worked for President Biden, it was a monumental piece of legislation, which I thought was transformative. And you have two corporate Democrats who refuse uh, to support that uh, very important Biden initiative uh, that we all work very, very hard on. Uh, once I'm glad they killed that thing by the record. It was trash. Again, I think what you have as an issue is which side are you on? And for Manchin or Cinema or anybody else, they're going to have to decide. Uh, Julie Sue is now being attacked, big ads all over the country, uh, because she stands up for working people. She believes in apprenticeship programs. Uh, she believes in raising the minimum wage. She's opposed vigorously to ch- the exploitation of children. Uh, she is a very strong candidate, somebody I want to see become our Secretary of Labor. Corporate interests don't want her. And we will see how uh, members of the Democratic caucus vote on that. I think we've got to have unanimous support for her on the committee. But as you indicated, it comes down to some of our corporate uh, Democrats uh, in the Senate. Senator Bernie Sanders, thank you for joining me this morning. I want to talk about all those things, but we're not going to. <laughs> because that would, again, include confronting uncomfortable realities. Now, say what you will about Bernie Sanders. I still love the guy. I wish he, he was a little bit toothless for me. That's really my biggest c- criticism of Bernie Sanders. But you can't say this. And here, here's something. I know a lot of you out there are conservatives and a lot of you out there have villainized Bernie for all these reasons. I will not apologize for supporting Bernie in 2016 and 2020. He got hosed. I would have loved to have seen him go up against Trump in a, in a, in a presidential election. I think it would have been fantastic for the country. I think we would have had productive dialogue. I would have liked to have seen their debates. And I think Bernie Sanders honestly would have made a fool of Trump in many, many ways. 
I would love it if Bernie Sanders would just jump on the ticket with Trump and we could just do that, right? Trump Sanders 2024, let's go, baby. I would be down with that. Um, but it's unlikely to happen because Bernie, the 2016 Bernie was peak Bernie. 2020 Bernie got into, into, the, into the, the bullshit that Democratic Party was. He had to play this stupid fucking game, and he was not good at that game. But in 2016, he was robust, and the superdelegates and the corruption within the DNC kept him from the nomination and put the most unlikable twat ever to exist, Hillary Rodham Clinton, in the place to get beat by Trump. Now, if you think that Bernie Sanders would have been just like Biden as far as um, COVID and the COVID experience, right, whatever you think about that, I don't foresee the person who has criticized the corruption of the healthcare system writing blank checks to Pfizer um, during that experience. I think two people that would have done that that were in the position to do so, Donald J. Trump and Joseph uh, Biden. Okay? The clown and the, and the corpse were definitely going to do that. This man would, have the, would not have done that. He would also have not have punished working people and created the largest transfer of wealth upward in our nation's history. That would not have happened. So if you're critical of the way that was handled, maybe reevaluate how, what you think about this man and how he would have handled himself. I find that very, very unlikely that he would have handled it that way. That being said, when you look at this, you can see what MSNBC has a bias towards here. Culture war, culture war, culture war, right? Avoiding the topics and the uncomfortable truths that affect people's daily, day-to-day lives all the time, which is why they do not deserve your respect, which is why Fox News does the same thing, does not deserve your respect. Finding substance, people like it over at Breaking Points, they do a great job. But here we have to look at this. It's like This is the system that we're being manipulated into buying into, and every time we play into it, we're becoming part of the problem. And what we, ha- what we have to do as a culture, as individuals within this, is be examples for our families and our communities, as I will say, and I will beat that horse until it's deader than dead. You have to be an example within your in your family, in your community of disengaging from this fuckery and living a life that is based on principles and acting in a way that people can admire and going from there, regardless of your belief systems, regardless of the details, living through your principles. Now, it's that that beautiful time of the show, the beautiful time of the show, that people begged me to keep even though I changed the name. It's something to think about, everybody. I'm going to give you a little something-something right here. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, I was listening to the man, the myth, the legend, Andrew Huberman on Joe Rogan's podcast the other day. He brought up something. He was talking about ice baths and sauna and stuff like that. And he was kind of saying like, yeah, I struggle with this and that. And uh, But Huberman takes a very scientific approach to things and does a variety of things um, that are backed by evidence and to explore these and make an example of himself, which I really respect and appreciate. Now, while he was trying to explain this, Joe Rogan just kept calling him a pussy constantly, which was kind of annoying. Honestly, I like, I love Joe. We all know that, but like I was getting kind of annoyed. He was like interrupting him just to like, why don't you do it the way I do it? Cause I'm fucking hardcore. And I was like, dude, David Goggins, chill the fuck out and let him explain what he's trying to talk about here. And what he was talking about was the way he does ice baths and, and, and sauna and different things like that is through this kind of principle of pushing pushing walls. And I like that. I thought about that. I've done that in my own life. And that's kind of the way I think about it. But the way he articulated it, I really appreciated this idea of like wherever you want to stop, just go a little further, right? I like to ice bath for at least three minutes, um, especially this time of year because it, the, the ice bath gets down to about 40 degrees at night. And I can, uh, if I get in early enough in the day, 
it's still in that pretty cold temp and I don't have to go buy like $30 worth of ice, which is what it takes to fill that damn thing up. And I don't have $10,000 to buy an ice bath. So <laughs> one of the really cool ones. So for me, I'm like, all right, in the sauna, right? I like to go in there. I'm like, whenever I want to stop, whenever that little fucking voice in my head is like, God, I got to stop. I got to stop just a little bit more. Maybe it's five more minutes. Maybe it's two more minutes. Just get past the wall, push the wall. And what you'll notice is that maybe that wall may recede a little bit before the next time, but it's not where it was the day before. Same thing with the ice. If I don't want to get in that bitch, sometimes I have to break like two inches of ice to get in there. Sometimes it's just a dunk. Just, I don't want to do it. So I'm going to get in here. I'm going to get in here in 20 seconds, you know, and I'm going to get back in the sauna and that next 20 minutes in the sauna. I'm like, God, you're such a bitch. You got that three minutes in there. Let's go. And the next time I get out, because I got in the first, if I didn't get in the first time, I wouldn't do it. But I get in, do a dunk, 20 seconds, maybe, to get my head underneath the water, feel it, and then I get back in the sauna and I go, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad, but I pushed the wall. If you don't push the wall, you're leaving something left on the table there, in my opinion. So where can we do that, right? That's one thing. Sauna, ice bath is one thing. Exercise is one thing. But where can we do it outside of the physical? Outside of the mental, where can we do it emotionally, right? Men in particular, where can you do that emotionally? I'm not an advocate for softening men up. I have a, I have an aversion to soft men. You guys have seen this. You guys know this. I have issues respecting soft men, right? Guys that wear mala beads and gowns and float around and talk about the ethereal and blah, 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 blah. I find them to be pussies. Right? <laughs> Maybe that's not you. Maybe you resonate with that and I respect that for you. But for me, I can't handle that. But I do think it's important for men to be able to push walls emotionally. Can you communicate and be vulnerable with your partner in that environment, right? And that doesn't mean softening up necessarily. Maybe it's a pragmatic communication style. Maybe it's communicating emotions, not mirroring the feminine, but through the masculine, right? Being comfortable enough in yourself, grounded enough and stable enough and sturdy enough that you can push walls within yourself emotionally. And in my opinion, by doing that, by consciously developing that practice and that ability to push walls physically, mentally, and emotionally, by doing that, you have less of a propensity, less of a bias towards mirroring the feminine expression of emotions. So by doing that, a whole process, and by trying that, and that's different for everybody. I can't sit here and tell you how to do it necessarily, right? If I had a conversation, we kind of went back and forth, and I saw what made sense for you. Yeah, maybe we could have that conversation, but I can't give you, there's no step-by-step guideline on how to emote, right? How to express and interact with your own emotions and how to communicate those. But we can push walls in all aspects of our lives. And when you bring up the word emotions, it kind of carries a little bit of baggage because the examples we see out there are guys that are so over the top in sharing these emotions. That's one option. Or we have this other like antiquated men are fucking stay hard <laughs> you know, type of thing. It's like this antiquated kind of reductionist masculinity expression. And I think what we have to do is take that responsibility within ourselves, which is a masculine trait, take responsibility to express one's emotions, especially if you're heading into parenthood, especially if you're in a, in, a, in a relationship. These things are important. That doesn't mean softening necessarily. What it does mean is creating more awareness of oneself, 
and being able to push those walls emotionally and communicate in a way that feels aligned. And then you don't get blindsided by emotional waves. You create more groundedness, more resilience, right? You know, we love that principle of resilience on the, resilience, resilience-ness on this show. <laughs> you get grounded in that resilience and you're more open to your own emotional expressions, emotional needs, emotional desires, because they do exist no matter how hardcore you are. But what the important thing to do is be able to push those walls within yourself. Now, pushing the walls physically and mentally can help prime that pathway. And that's why principles are so fucking important. Maybe it makes sense for you. Maybe it doesn't. But either way, it's something to think about, guys. I love y'all. Thank you for being here. Share the show. Join the Patreon. And be good to yourself out there. Push those walls, bitches. Oh, yeah. And keep your head on straight. Love you. Bye-bye.